Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we come back to this chapter that deals so thoroughly and clearly and specifically with spiritual gifts. And the clarity is uh, really a byproduct of so much confusion that was taking place when Paul wrote this letter. So much deviation and aberration, and we would even say fabrication, of uh, of pseudo-experiences in the name of spiritual gifts. So much so that Paul will have to confront them, you remember, in the following chapter, chapter 13, and he'll have to tell them, look, you can, you can claim to, to, to have faith that moves mountains, you can claim to know all mysteries and all knowledge, you can claim to have all these things, but if you have not love, it's nothing. If you have not love, you're nothing and you gain nothing. And that's really his way of saying, look, no matter what phenomenon you're claiming to experience, no matter what kind of manifestation you will say there, if it is not operating according to the principle of love, it is, it is a, a pseudo gift because the Spirit doesn't use gifts that way. He doesn't operate through gifts that way. As we saw in 1 Corinthians twelve seven, gifts are given to each individual for the common good. That is to say that God gives gifts and He ministers through them in the church for the building up of others. And so there were all sorts of things that were taking place in the name of gifts in the church that Paul has to come back and say, these things are nothing. As a matter of fact, someone had even stood up in the church, we saw in chapter 12, verse 3, and, and claiming to be speaking by the Holy Spirit, had declared that Jesus Christ was accursed. And so Paul has to confront that error as well. He has to clarify that issue as well, that no one speaking by the Holy Spirit would say such a thing. As a matter of fact, that's sort of the first, I guess you could say, the first matter that he deals with is not just the centrality of love working through the gifts, but we might say the singularity of its source. And that's really the point of the first 12 verses of chapter, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 12, that there are a variety of gifts and there's all kinds of manifestations and there's all these things that the Lord gives us, but they all have the same source. They all arise out of the same fountain. There are all kinds of various gifts that the Lord gives us, but each one of them are a manifestation of the same spirit. Now we started to look at that last week and and as we look at chapter 12 today, we can, we can just take note that Paul continues or expands on that point in verses 8 through 11. We only really looked at verses 4 through 7 last week. But in verse 8, Paul sort of carries that forward by saying, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the, by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Now, the point is clear. The Lord gives all kinds of gifts to the church. 
He gives all kinds of variety of gifts, like, like leaves on a tree. They are all unique. They are all necessary. They all produce. They all do something in the overall body of Christ. And the point is that despite all that diversity, there's a singularity, there's a unity that's being accomplished by the one Spirit who is sovereignly ordaining and choosing how those gifts are distributed. And we could take note of that point and we could move on, except for the fact that you have this mysterious list that is in front of us. And in many ways, we would say it is an incidental feature of the text. Paul's point is not necessarily to draw attention to all the particular gifts. His point is to draw attention to the singular source. But over the course of time, over the course of history, this list has attracted much attention. Partly because people read it and they don't know what to do with it. I mean, all kinds of questions arise. People look at it with uh, some level of of mystery because they don't understand the list. They don't recognize many of the gifts. They don't really know how to categorize these things in accordance with the experiences that they have on a regular basis or a weekly basis or whatever it might be in the church. And so the list itself, while it's not the primary feature of the text, while it's not the primary point of the text, has raised all these questions. What does all this mean? What are these gifts? How do they operate? Should we be expecting them to operate all around us in the church today? People, of course, have tried to fill the speculative void by their own definitions, and we have the rise of a Pentecostal and charismatic movement all around us. But we could say in a broader scope that that people have dealt with this passage and dealt with this, I guess you could say, mystery basically three different ways throughout church history. One group would say essentially that we're looking for the wrong thing. That is to say, when they look at this gift and they read things, they say the problem is that you are assuming something about the gifts that you shouldn't assume. You are assuming that they are miraculous when in fact they're very natural. In other words, when someone uh, uh, when someone ministers, say, in the gift of healing, uh, they would be simply operating as some Christian doctor or Christian nurse and, and be about the healing arts. Or when someone uh, operates, we might say, with the gift of, of discerning of spirits, that's just uh, you know, good common sense. Or if someone, say, has the gift of tongues, they're particularly adept at studying languages. And so that's a, one approach that has been brought, and they say the reason it's a mystery is because we're looking for the wrong things. Well, I mean, you could say that, but it's really hard to coordinate that with the way that the, some of these gifts are mentioned in other parts of Scripture, when they are very conspicuously miraculous, and hardly anything that takes place in the natural realm. And so, secondly... Instead of some people saying we're looking for the wrong thing, you have some people who suggest that we're not looking. That the reason that this is a mystery and the reason that we don't know how to deal with it and the reason that it doesn't make sense to us is because we don't want to see these things. That we either are too modern or we're too rationalistic or we're too carnal or we're too sinful or we're too biased or whatever it might be. Maybe we're untaught, maybe we have weak faith, uh, whatever the reason 
they would say there's some block, some hindrance, and so we are not looking for the gifts. And if you would look for the gift, if you would approach it by faith, then you would begin to see the gifts. And so the, the only mystery there, the only barrier there is with you. Well, that obviously hasn't flown with everyone. And so there's a third category that we would mention, and that's the people who, are, who, who aren't saying that you were looking for the wrong thing, and they're not saying we're not looking, but they're saying we're looking but not finding. In other words, this is a group of people who have correctly understood the miraculous nature of these gifts and have looked for them in faith, but have simply not found them. They've studied the way that they operate in Scripture. They've understood all the various manifestations. They've understood the divine and sovereign manner in which the Spirit gives these gifts. They've understood that what the Scripture says is that there's nothing within us that can generate and produce these gifts. They understand that they're not man-centered. They're not man-produced. They're not man-created. They understand that they come from God, and yet when they understand the, the, the nature of these gifts and the effects and the manifestations. And then when they fail to see those things manifesting themselves around us, they conclude that God has sovereignly chosen to no longer distribute these gifts in our current day. That doesn't mean the gifts don't exist. It doesn't mean that the gifts don't have purpose. It just means they don't have purpose in existence for our time. That conclusion is often labeled cessationism. It's the belief that the gifts have ceased, and it has by far been the dominant view of the church for almost its entire existence. The church has, has historically and traditionally uh, separated the gifts out into the miraculous and the providential. It's not to say supernatural and natural, because we know no gift is natural. Every one of them are bestowed by the Holy Spirit uh, on, on believers, and so we're not saying that these are natural gifts Every gift that we have is, is divine, comes by divine enablement, and so therefore it is supernatural. But there are some gifts that operate, we would say, within the providential realm. That is to say, they operate by the prompting and by the enabling of God's Holy Spirit, but operate through providential means in our lives, natural uh, means that are consistent with the natural world. And then there are some gifts that operate miraculously, that is, apart from or above the natural means of the world. And cessationism has traditionally understood those miraculous gifts to have passed away. Now, this is not just some recent conclusion. And it isn't just the conclusion of some narrow field of Western society it is the documented view that appears very, very early in the records of church history. Almost immediately by the end of the first century, early church writers began to comment that the gifts were no longer operating in the church. There wasn't a lot of explanation why. It was just simply noted by a number of early church fathers, with the exception of one gift in particular, the gift of prophecy, which a few writers spoke about as having operation into the second century, but by the middle of even the second century, the Orthodox Church recognized that even that gift had ceased operation within the historic church. And this is in spite of the fact 
that the faith of that church was very strong. In other words, their failure to see the gift wasn't because they were lacking in faith. As a matter of fact, many of these people who said that the gifts were no longer in operation would themselves one day, because of the strength of their faith, be delivered over to martyrdom. They would go to the stake. They would be burned. They would be fed to the animals in the amphitheater because of the strength of their faith. So the issue wasn't the simplicity or the shallowness of their faith. They were just making a a realistic observation that the gifts that you read about in Scripture are no longer operating in their midst. In fact, it's only been recently in terms of church history that there's been any widespread effort to resurrect the practice of most or many of these gifts. The last hundred years, really, has there been anything that we would classify as the Pentecostal, Charismatic, and Third Wave movements. But as with any period of church history, the sound and biblical understanding of these gifts will make it immediately clear that whatever phenomenon people may be experiencing or claim to experience today don't match up to what we read in Scripture and a biblical definition of these spiritual gifts. And so we want to we take some time today and next week to just look at this list. Admitting up front, it's not the point even of the passage, but it's a crisis of our church today that too few people stand with the historic Orthodox Church in the, the fact that these gifts have ceased by God's sovereign design, are no longer operative in the church. And so to help us understand that more clearly, we want to take a little time in the next two weeks to dive into this text and each one of these gifts and piece together from the Scripture, not from our own speculation, an understanding of how they most likely operated so that we can see clearly see their absence in the church today. Paul lists nine total gifts here, nine in verses 8 through 11, probably listing these gifts because they were somewhat representative of what the Corinthians were claiming for themselves. They all appear to have some supernatural, excuse me, some miraculous connection All of them seem to be grouped together in that way. And so when we read through them, we understand that this was probably representative of what the Corinthians themselves were claiming. He begins in verse 8 with what we might call a word of wisdom. ESV has the utterance of wisdom, but it's more commonly translated and more commonly understood to be a word of wisdom. A logos sophias is the word in Greek. And several things need to be kept in mind, not only with this gift, but with all the gifts. Because many of them use terminology that we would say is common to all Christians. That is to say that every one of us are filled with a wisdom that's not our own. Every one of us is supposed to seek after divine, godly, even heavenly wisdom. James chapter 3 says that we are to seek a wisdom that comes down from above that is peaceable and pure and, and, and willing to yield and is full of good fruits. So every one of us, we understand, are supposed to be seeking after this divine wisdom. We would say otherworldly wisdom. And yet it's clear when you study spiritual gifts that gifts are not intended to be universally dispersed. That is to say, even here in verse 11, 
he says very clearly that the Spirit apportions this to each one individually as he wills. That is to say, these are, these are given to select and specific individuals. And so don't confuse this gift with the, the general wisdom that every one of us is supposed to seek, the wisdom that Paul prays for, for example, with the Colossian believers, that they would be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's God's will for every one of us, that we all be filled with all wisdom. He didn't intend it to be for a select few. And so as we come to this, we don't look at it as some supernatural gift, some special ability to sort of bypass the natural hard work of studying to show yourself approved, to be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of the truth. This isn't some divine crutch for a lack of self-study. Probably the key to unlocking our understanding of this gift is simply to take note of how Paul uses the word wisdom just simply in the book of Corinthians. And, and to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me back to chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 6, because Paul makes mention of wisdom very prominently there. And I want you to take note what he says about this wisdom regarding himself and, by the way, the other apostolic messengers. This is what he says. Among the mature, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. Which, de- which was decreed before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age understood For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So here Paul says, look, we have a wisdom. And we, we, we dispense that wisdom, we and the other apostles, we impart that wisdom, but it's not a wisdom that comes from this world. It's not a wisdom that comes from this age. It doesn't come from the rulers of this age. It doesn't come from their experts. It doesn't come from, from uh, all of their gurus. In fact, he says, it's not even something that you can arrive at by natural means. You can't arrive at it by empirical observation, the the seeing of the eye. You can't arrive at it by historical research, the hearing of the ear. You can't arrive at it by philosophical musing, rationalistic thought, all kinds of imagination, intellectual deduction, what enters into the heart of man. In fact, he says the only way we have this wisdom in verse 10 is how? Divine revelation. That's the only way we got it. It is miraculous wisdom. In fact, Peter, in one of his final writings, 2 Peter chapter 3, he refers to Paul's life. And he says this about him in 2 Peter 3.15. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And by the way, when he says that, he goes on to say, 
and other people twist his writings like they do the rest of Scripture. In other words, in Peter's mind, the Scripture, what Paul wrote was Scripture, and what Paul wrote was wisdom. What Paul wrote was divinely revealed, supernaturally revealed truth, which then became inscripturated or recorded for us as Scripture. So when we understand what Paul says here, when we understand what a word of wisdom is, at least in the context of 1 Corinthians, we should most likely understand that what Paul's talking about here are, are divinely and supernaturally, or I should say miraculously, revealed truths, which are, by the way, often associated with mysteries. You don't, we don't have time to do a full study of mysteries, but if you look into the New Testament, mystery is simply something that was previously unrevealed which has now been revealed in the New Covenant. And you can go through the Scripture and you can find all kinds of mysteries. You can find the mystery of Christ, for example. You can look in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 and you find a mystery that Jews and Gentiles will be together in one body in the church. You can find a mystery, for example, in Romans chapter 11, how, a mystery of how Israel will be hardened in the final days. And so you look in the New Testament, there's several things that are designated as mysteries, but every one of them are simply referring to something that God supernaturally revealed, miraculously revealed, that wasn't previously revealed to previous generations. In other words, the only way you could know it is not by studying Scripture, but only if God miraculously told you. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look over at Ephesians chapter 3, because Paul uses it here a little bit different way, but speaking of the same thing, Ephesians 3, in verse 3, Paul speaks about a mystery that was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here, instead of using the word wisdom, He uses the word insight, but He says the same thing. There is something that was given to me that wasn't previously given to other generations by by miraculous revelation. And this is the concept of the word of wisdom, the utterance of wisdom. These, these divine revelations that were necessary to understand God's will and the way He was working in the church at that time. To understand the hardening of Israel. To understand the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body. To understand the working of the cross. All of these things given by God's grace to messengers in a word of wisdom. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because Paul mentions a second gift here. Not just a word of wisdom, but a word of knowledge or an utterance of knowledge, again, as the ESV has it. The word logos, gnosios, just simply translated often just a word of knowledge. And once again, you have a word or you have a phrase or you have terminology that would strike some as nothing more than the common gift that every believer is supposed to seek. We all, Second Peter says, ought to be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays for the Philippians that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge. But again, because we understand this as a gift, we understand that the Spirit dispenses it individually to certain people and not to others. 
And so when we come to when we come to wrap our minds around this, we don't understand this again as some way to bypass all that continual effort at growing in grace and knowledge. It's not like some uh, sometimes God just zaps some of us and we suddenly just know a lot. Now this is something different and probably something miraculous as well, not only because of its grouping here with all these other miraculous gifts, but you go down to 1 Corinthians 13, and Paul even relates it in chapter 13, verse 2, with understanding mysteries and, and prophecy. But more importantly, down in chapter 13, verse 8, he actually speaks of a day when knowledge will pass away. Now, don't imagine that because he says that, that everyone in, he- in heaven is going to be ignorant. He's not saying, look, when you get to heaven, you're all going to know nothing. In other words, this isn't general knowledge. But he's saying there's a, there's a day when the gift of knowledge will pass away. A miraculous gift. And so this gift, different from universal knowledge for all believers, uh, different from even, we would say, supernatural knowledge that's associated with prophecy because prophecy itself has an element of knowledge in it, and yet still operates, it seems, in a supernatural way. Probably our first clue might be just looking at the way he associates it with the word of wisdom. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 12, he says that the word of wisdom is a word which originates from God but works through the Spirit. It's given through the Spirit. A dia is the preposition there. It's a, uh, uh, an issue of agency. And so the Spirit, God communicates some mystery of wisdom through the medium of the Spirit into a human agent. But when Paul comes to talk about the word of knowledge, the utterance of knowledge, it's a different phrase. Now, instead of through, he says it is according to. That is the, word, the preposition kata, which, which refers back to something. It's, it's saying that it's in keeping with, or it's in agreement with, or it's according to. In other words, it's pointing back to something, and so many translators believe it's pointing back to the work of the Spirit in the word of wisdom. That is to say that the word of knowledge isn't necessarily some new secret that's revealed, but it is in reference to things previously revealed and yet now spoken authoritatively and now spoken with miraculous insight. Those previously revealed things, previously revealed truth, the word of knowledge will launch off of that. It will elaborate on that. It will, we might say, apply that in a new situation so that the word of wisdom deals with unrevealed truth and the word of knowledge deals with revealed truth. Now, let me just show you one example of where this might be taking place. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here you have something very similar to this kind of of uh, phenomenon. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, of course, he's writing to singles and to married and to divorced people. And he says in verse 10, uh, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul says, look, I'm going to convey something to you, but it doesn't come from me. It's not I, but it's the Lord. And what he's doing is he's simply, he's simply giving us 
uh, a restatement of what was already made known by Christ. Matthew 19, he, Matthew chapter 5, other places in Scripture where Jesus addresses the issue of divorce. Uh, the, the, the mystery or the secret or the wisdom uh, came on the lips of Christ. And so Paul says, look, this isn't from me. This is from him, and this is what he taught. But I want you to take note in verse 12, because he changes. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And he goes on to explain that, look, if you're living with an unbeliever and they consent to live with you, 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 need, to, you need to stay But he goes on to say further down, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, and by the way, that's the same word you find in in, uh, Matthew 19 when it says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So that's that's another word, that's a synonym for divorce. So he's basically saying, look, if, if an unbelieving partner divorces, let it be so. In such cases, a brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. So here's Paul now taking the teaching that came from Christ, and what's he doing? He is expanding, or he's elaborating, or we would say he's applying that in a different kind of situation. He's taking a previously revealed truth, and now he's building on that, and we would say perhaps this is a word of knowledge. Very similar, by the way, to what you see taking place in the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? He says, you've heard that it was said such and such, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so what he's taken is he's taken some previously revealed truth, the Mosaic law, which forbade adultery, and he he expands on that, not in contradiction to it, but by further showing the implications of it. And how do the people respond? They say, how is this man so learned when he's never studied? They're amazed. They're amazed at his knowledge. And they know it's not natural. They understand understand there's something miraculous about the insight that he brings. And they understand there's something powerful in the consistency with the the Mosaic Code. But they know whatever he's doing is, is beyond human means. And so the word of knowledge, along with the word of wisdom, serves this purpose in the early church. By the way, when there was no New Testament scripture circulated in the church to let them know, now that they're in the new covenant, how they are to operate in accordance with the old covenant. By the time the book of Corinthians was written, in the early to mid-50s of the first century, you may have had at the most, four New Testament books written and probably not widely circulated at this point. And so what you have is a a church now spreading across the Roman Empire, but with no written scripture to let them understand what are the implications of all that Old Testament stuff that was given. And so God gives these gifts in order to reveal these divine secrets and then in order to have people in the church know how to apply all these secrets Know how to expand and, 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 and give the implications for all these secrets in the church. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul mentions the third gift, the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Once again, it's a gift that obviously referring to something that every one of us have. I mean, faith is the means of grace, right? That is what we read in Scripture. By grace, you've been saved through faith. 
So faith is the means of grace. And so we read in Scripture that a believer is to do everything by faith. In fact, it says if you don't do it by faith, it is sin, Romans chapter 14 says. So so faith is the means of grace, and everything you do by faith mediates God's grace into your life. You can drive your car by faith. I'm I'm not talking about closing your eyes and taking your hands off the wheel. I'm talking about as unto the Lord, right? So you don't cut people off. You can wash the dishes in faith. You can parent. You can go to work. You can do all these things in faith, and God's grace is flowing through you. You obviously preach, and you teach, and you take communion, and do all those things in faith. And God's grace is worked out in your life. So this is something that should be operative in everyone's life, right? We're supposed to be growing in this faith. And yet, it's listed here as a spiritual gift. And even over in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2 again, Paul says, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I'm nothing. He's listing it there probably again along with other spiritual gifts that they were claiming. But it wasn't operating in love. That, by the way, is a reference back to Jesus' own teachings when he says, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to a mountain, move over here and it'll happen. And nothing will be impossible for you. And so because of that, some people, because Jesus said that in response to some disciples who had tried to cast out a demon and couldn't. And so some people say, well, the gift of faith is just casting out demons. Well, it's possible. That's, that may be the case, but I don't think that's it. I think it's broader than that. I think it's much broader than that. I think it's the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in someone's life to accomplish His will in the face of insurmountable obstacles and in response to some vision. And I think if you take that definition, what you'll see is that that happens a number of times in Scripture. And this is what you have to remember. We've already talked about this. Uh, gifts are given, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, for the common good. So, so whatever this gift of faith is, it's not for the individual. The gift of faith is in order to minister to others. And so whatever this gift of faith is, it has to have a common benefit. And the common benefit you see is the strengthening of faith of people around you. Let me show you one example of what I'm talking about. Flip over to Acts 27. Acts 27 is this amazing account of Paul's perilous journey to Rome. He had been taken prisoner in Jerusalem, shackled to a a Roman centurion, taken aboard a ship, and they encounter this terrible storm. And in the midst of the storm, they did what every sailor did in those days. They started to throw things overboard. First of all, they threw the cargo, so there now was no more profit to arriving in the port. They're not going to be paid. And then pretty soon, they throw the tackle. So they've given up all hope of steering the ship. They just throw everything over that they could use to manage the ship. And then finally, they throw over the food. So here they are just drifting out in the middle of this storm, and they that's a sign that they had given up all hope. I mean, they, they'd done everything within their means to save the ship and keep it afloat. And it's in the midst of this that we see Paul standing up in Acts 27, verse 22. At the height of the danger, he says, Yet, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, 
to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I, for, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've told you. See, God gave him a vision. And in spite of impossible circumstances, he knew that somehow God was going to do this. But it wasn't just for Paul. His faith strengthened the faith of people around him. And that's the way he uses it. As a matter of fact, a Roman centurion that he's shackled to, uh, there will be some men who try to cut loose one of the skiffs and escape uh, into the storm. And Paul says, don't let them do that. They're going to die and we're going to die if they do that. So the Roman centurion, bolstered by Paul's faith, cuts the ship loose so that they can't escape on it. You see, this is faith for the common good. And you see it all the time, right? You have a man in the Old Testament named Gideon. And Gideon is told by God that he would take an inferior army against the, the hordes of Midians, and he would defeat the Midians by God's power. And it was ridiculously impossible. As a matter of fact, to make it even more impossible, God whittles down his force to just 300 men. And yet Gideon's Faith inspires everyone, and with 300 men, they route tens of thousands of Midians. And God has the victory, Israel has the victory, and God has the glory. And by the way, there are others. Abraham is told by God in a vision that he have a son, in spite of the fact that he's 100 years old, his wife's 90. In fact, in spite of the fact that he's, he's beyond childbearing years, in other words. He's going to have this child... And in in the face of impossible circumstances, he has to continue to believe and he has to continue to inspire the people around him that although there is no heir to his estate, that they're going to be okay. That they're going to be okay. Go out to a country far away that's not your own. Separate yourself from all your family, all your security. Follow me even though I don't have an heir to my estate. And they all go. But it wasn't just Abraham's immediate audience, I guess you should say. But now the faith that God gave to Abraham and he demonstrated comes down to every successive generation to us and strengthens our faith. And Gideon strengthens our faith. And so God has ministered this gift for the common good. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 is a litany of people who were given faith in difficult circumstances in order to minister beyond themselves to the people who are around them for the common good. And so most likely when Paul speaks about a gift of faith here, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this this miraculous uh, uh, appointment in someone's life to, to, to have an insight into the way God's going to work so that they can, in turn, minister to the people around them with strong, strong faith. Some people call it heroic courage endowed by the Spirit. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a fourth gift. A fourth gift, the gift of healings. We would, we would best um, present this as the gifts of healings. That's the way it is in the Greek. It is a plural form and leads some people to think, that Paul's looking at it. It's the only one he kind of uses the plurals like this for. It's at least some people to suggest that Paul's talking about two kinds of healings. One which deals with demonically caused diseases. And you see those in the, 
in the uh, New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus encounters someone who has uh, some sort of ailment, some sort of illness that's demonically caused. And then you have those that are healers in natural causes. I mean, that may or may not be the case, but the bottom line is we don't know because it doesn't operate. We don't have any... We don't have any empirical data to figure out how there might be different gifts of healings. You say, well, but, but pastor, I've heard of healings. I mean, I read in a magazine about healings. I mean, so my friend told me about healings. And there are all around us these claims of, of faith healers, usually off in some third-party uh, uh, distant land where there's no possibility of scrutiny at all. Healings that are claimed in the midst of large auditoriums of people in specifically controlled environments, always with arranged circumstances. And then so much of that healing takes place over ailments that are far from certain and often personally diagnosed rather than professionally diagnosed and ultimately in very debatable cases. But in light of all these modern phenomenon, we have to ask, is that the way healing operated in the New Testament? I mean, all those things I just described, is that the way you see healing taking place in the New Testament? Were the healing ministries of Jesus and his apostles choreographed? Were they in controlled settings? Did they involve pre-screened candidates? Were they always done in such a way that it was left open to debate regarding the legitimacy of his healings? Well, I mean, it doesn't take long to look into the life of Christ, the greatest healer of all time, to see that whatever's claimed today has no resemblance to what we see in the life of Christ. Several characteristics jump out to you when you look at Christ's healing ministry. First of all, his healings were immediate. That is to say, there was no recuperative period. It didn't take place over a period of time. I was working with a gentleman a while back, and, um, and we, so we would contact, we'd see each other face-to-face, or we would have contact by phone, and it was shortly after I had broken my leg. And so he says, you know, can I pray for you that your leg be healed? I said, well, sure, I mean, that's great, I'd love to be healed, so go ahead. And, and so he prayed for me, and I was, you know, thankful for his kindness and his compassion. But then after that, um, he would ask me every time we got together, so how's the leg? I said, well, it's a little bit better, you know, kind of just kind of stay off of it. It's feeling so. And then two weeks later, he'd call up and he'd always be in this conversation. So how's the leg? Well, thank you for asking, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the mend and you know, it's a little slower than I thought, but, and every time and every time he'd keep asking me as if somehow that, that, that if we waited long enough, the healing would take. Well, listen, there, were, there was no recuperative period with Christ. He didn't say, you know, let me pray for you and I'll come see you in a month and let me know how the healing's going. And there wasn't any, uh, you know, a strained period of time. You have to follow up and you have to get a, a constant feedback because when he healed someone, it was immediate. I mean, there were those couple of cases where he, for whatever reason, he put his fingers in someone's ears or put a little mud on their eyes, but it, within minutes, those people were healed. It wasn't days and it wasn't weeks and it certainly wasn't months. His healings were instantaneous, all of them. Secondly, his healings were total and permanent. That is to say, when he healed somebody, there was no reoccurrence. 
In other words, it wasn't just some psychological soothing and it wasn't just some sort of emotional placebo that made people in the moment of euphoria feel better about their ailments only to find them recurring or falling back to. And there have been, I'll just leave them for your own investigation, there have been a number of studies that have done that. They've gone to people who had so-called experiences of healing and tracked them down three months or in some cases six months after the so-called phenomenon to find them right back where they started on the same medication with the same ailments in the same sort of needs that they always were. This has no resemblance to our Lord's healing ministry. People, People didn't fall back into whatever their ailments were. Thirdly, His healings were abundant. They weren't confined to special times or locations. There weren't just a select few people who were brought up to a stage for public display while everyone else was shuffled back in their wheelchairs to to the exits of the building. Unlike the healers of today, Jesus didn't leave long lines of disappointed people. There were no pre-arranged meetings. There were no screening of potential candidates. In fact, when you read about Christ's healing ministry, this is what you read. Things like Luke chapter 4. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought to them, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. Every single person was healed. Show me where you find such things today. Not only that, we would say his healings didn't require his physical presence. That is, sometimes Jesus would heal people with just a word. A centurion comes to him because his son is sick. He says, go, your faith has made him well. He says to a Canaanite uh, woman uh, about her daughter that she's well and, and uh, she goes and finds it. So the son of an official from Capernaum, just with a word, Jesus heals them. He doesn't have to be physically present and there, doesn't have to, there don't have to be songs magnifying him. We would say, fifthly, that Jesus' healings included resurrections. Once Jesus was in a city called Nain, and he came upon a funeral procession, and a boy in a coffin that had been dead now for quite a while, Jesus stops the procession, touches the coffin. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. The man sat up and began to speak. Now, I'm waiting for the uh, modern-day healers to become funeral crashers. I mean, when they want me to really get on board and begin to endorse, I want them to go to some disassociated funeral and speak to some disassociated person who's been dead now a number of days and tell them to arise and walk. Then I might begin to believe that their healing ministry resembles that of our Savior. And finally... And maybe more importantly than any, is that Jesus' healings were undeniable. They were undeniable. That is to say that his harshest critics, his harshest skeptics could not deny that healings were taking place. One man comes to him in the middle of the night and says, Rabbi, We know that you've come from God because no man could do these healings unless God was with him. And this was a man who sat on the religious council, the the Sanhedrin, who would one day condemn Jesus to death. As a matter of fact, later on in John, in John chapter 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together 
we read in verse 47 and say, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? And if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. So in other words, one of the greatest stamps of authenticity for the miracles of Jesus was that his harshest critics couldn't deny that the miracles were taking place. That's a standard. No one today lives by. In fact, when they, when they wanted to deal with Jesus, they couldn't deny the authenticity of the miracles. The only recourse they had was to say that he did the miracles by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. But the miracles themselves were, they were, even under the harshest scrutiny, undeniable. These are the characteristics, by the way, not only of our Lord's healing, but also of his apostles who came after him, whose healings were also immediate and total and permanent and abundant and undeniable. You look in the book, book of, the, uh, of Acts, and what you find is a, Acts 3, a crippled man healed immediately. Many sick people healed, Acts chapter 5. Paralyzed and lame people in Acts chapter 8 being raised up to walk. A blind man receiving his sight in Acts chapter 9. A paralyzed man getting the use of his limbs in that same chapter. Diseased people healed in Acts 19. People who were afflicted with, with fatal fever and dysentery healed later on in the book of Acts. All of these things reflect the same kind of power that you see operating in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and every one of them taking place at the hands of the apostles. Because these people were God's spokesmen, and the miracles validated them as recipients of a new message. They weren't just some local yokel who had some uh, lame brain idea. These people were validated by God's power to give revelation that had never previously been heard. That's why whenever you see miracles in the book of Acts, you normally see it followed up with a sermon. Uh, Peter heals in Acts chapter 3, a, a lame man. <clears throat> he immediately jumps up, dances. I mean, this isn't some slow recuperation. And then Peter gathers a crowd and says, this man that you see dancing for you He's dancing by the power of Christ. And by the way, you're sinners. And you need to be repentant so that the times of refreshing can come into your life. This is what you see. Men validated by the power of these miracles as spokesmen of God. But you know an interesting thing? If you just kind of look at the phenomenon in the New Testament, if you just take a piece of paper and you just list out in chronological order the way the books were written, what you'll find is an interesting thing is that essentially after the books of Corinthians, you see virtually no reference to miraculous gifts in any of the later books. It's almost as if in the first 20 years of the church, these gifts seem to explode on the scene, but after that, they seem to kind of fade away, so much so that Paul will actually say at some point in his own life that he was terribly sick and he didn't heal himself and he never asked for a healer in his own life. Or... Or you read about a dear worker, Epaphroditus, in Philippians chapter 2, that Paul says almost died. And Paul was seemingly unable to do anything about it. So much so that he fretted and he said, but God had mercy on him and on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was fearful that he would be struck down with sorrow because he had this sick person in front of him that was a dear friend and he was powerless to do anything about it. 
Later on, he'll actually say that he had to leave Trophimus, his associate, sick in Miletus. So here he has this wonderful co-worker that's very fruitful for him, and he has to leave him behind because he can't heal him. Even Timothy, in the midst of the Lord's work in 1 Timothy chapter 5, who is struggling maybe with all kinds of ailments, he says, look, take a little wine for your frequent ailments. Don't call the healer, probably because there were none by that point. It's not to say God doesn't heal. It's not to deny we serve a miraculous God. In fact, throughout the history of the church, there have continued to be testimonies, even up to our own day, of God healing people. And we believe He does. That's why we pray for it. That's why we ask God for His mercy in people's lives over and over and over again because we know we serve a powerful God. But we understand that that gift, while, while God may give the gift of healing to an individual, He doesn't give the gift of healing people to an individual. That is to say, that is to say the gift of healing, or I'm sorry, healing mediates itself through the prayers of the saints. And so we pray. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are in ailment. We ask God for His mercy, understanding that, that He may not choose to do that. He may choose for His own purposes and His own will, just like He has with so many godly saints throughout all the ages, to have a period of suffering in someone's life, maybe even death. His own son, He took by crucifixion. His greatest apostles suffered martyrdom. Some of the great saints through the ages Job and and many others all suffered according to the will of God. So we know that. But we also know by what we read in Scripture that nothing that takes place today has any resemblance to those unique gifts of healing that we see taking place in the early church. Well, there's others. I mean, I've got other slides. How much time do you have? We'll have to get into them next week. I'll look forward to it. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for just this instruction this morning. Thankful for the word which comes to us with clarity so that we can study it and understand your workings. Lord, I pray that we would stand on nothing but your word. That we would be unintimidated by the false claims of miraculous power today which seem to have so much more to do with exalting the individual than it does with exalting you. Lord, we want your gifts to be operative among us, supernaturally working the grace of the Spirit for the common good. Lord, we understand that you're working those today according to the will in which you sovereignly distribute those. Lord, we will submit to you. We will yield. And where you deem to give gifts, we will receive them. Where you deem not to give gifts, may we not claim them for our own purposes. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the work that you do among our body by the gifts of the saints. May it magnify you as we minister them to one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.